Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. to another moist and wet episode of Whining About Herstory from this very rainy state up here up north. This is a podcast where we talk about women's history and women that you probably haven't heard of but definitely should have while drinking probably way too much wine. I'm Kelly. And I am moist and or wet. <laughs> <laughs> that was so, I'm like... Oh, oh, look at Emily's face. <laughs> I just went in for, I went for shock factor. Oh, pure God. shock factor. I don't know if I'm disgusted to have the vapors. <laughs> I'm Emily. I'm the idiot. <laughs> it's fine. Don't worry about it. I don't think you're an idiot. Oh, well, I, I appreciate you. that. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode. Of Whining About Her Story. We have been drinking. Only a little. That's where I am right now. I mean, that's where we both are. So strap in and strap on, mofos, because it's getting weird. (laughs) Emily has something to talk about before we get into it. Okay, so before we get into anything, we have some pod business. uh, Some pod business I've neglected to actually talk about for the last three episodes because I'm just so excited to cover these women. So we have a new way for you to support us because we know how much you love us and how much you want us to succeed and how much you want to drink with us. So we now have the buy us a glass of wine link on our Instagram, on our link tree, all that stuff. Uh, you can find us at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash W-A-H pad. Uh, here you can buy us a glass of wine. We will give you a shout out, especially if you have like, I don't know if you have a profile or a business or something or a fellow podcast that you really want us to shout out. You can buy us one, three, or five glasses of wine and we will cheers in your honor and we will shout you out and we will love you for fucking ever. It's the closest we can all get to drinking together right now because sometimes you just got to drink with your bitches, all right? That's me. Yes. I'm the bitch. Kelly is the bitch. (laughs) And sometimes I am the bitch. And by sometimes I mean constantly. But yeah, you can find that on our Instagram, on our Facebook, all of our links. Or you can go directly to www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash W-A-H pad. Because traditionally this is used for coffee, but you know how we are. You know how we be. also drink coffee and... I drink more wine. Yeah. No, I probably no. don't. I, I drink we'll, a lot more coffee, but. We will cheer specifically to you. So please. And it's, it's a one-time thing. You can sponsor one, three, or five drinks or more than that if you're ever so inclined. It's just another way to support us other than the monthly, you know, donations on Patreon and all of that. And yeah, we'll shout you out and give you lots of love. We love you. All right. Well, Kelly, speaking of wine, what are we drinking today? Um, leftover open wines. What is the leftover open wine of your choice? Emily is drinking the Akiyoshi from last week, the Cab Sauv, and I'm drinking the Moulin de Grassac or the Gulheim. The Moulin Grand Sac? Yep. Great. Are you it's, sure it's that's okay to still drink? <laughs> no. I'm concerned. Um, I mean, it was a screw top. It was sealed. Unlike the 
juggernaut, which I thought about drinking. And then I was like, that's been open for like two weeks. Why didn't you seal it? Because I forgot. Drew's going to get so sick when he drinks that. Because Drew is basically our human. Iron stomach. He is our human dumpster for leftover wine. And I'm not meaning that in a like dismissive way. It's just literally how he operates and how he asks us to give him wine. He's like, I don't care how long it's been open. Give it to me. I've I've dumped out wine that I'm like, this isn't the right color anymore. And he gets gets so mad at me. He is, he, no drop left behind, no glass left behind by that boy. All right. Well, what should we cheers to? Cheers to all of our lovely supporters who may buy us a glass of wine and keep the wine flowing. Cheers to getting drunk. Cheers to being drunk. (laughs) Been there, done that. Mm. I really do like the Sakiyoshi. Oh my God, Kelly. I don't know. I don't remember what it. Well, I don't remember what it tastes. Dumb ways to die. Dumb ways to die. I don't remember what it tasted like originally. Is God damn it! <laughs> Plus, it's like mixed with a little bit of the Akiyoshi because there's still some left in my glass. Oh so, my god! I'm just gonna roll with it. Go ahead. You get to start. Who are you whining about today? Emily? Great choices are being made today. One thousand percent choices. Okay, so today I am whining about someone I had heard of and like seen images about and things and that um I don't actually oh no no no. I read I found them on a listicle of women who had had their like work or their discovery stolen from them and like Rosalind Franklin was on there our gal who discovered the double helix um so that's the story we're talking about today today we are covering I am whining about Margaret Keene of big eye paintings fame Alice Ball, Rosalind Franklin, Ada Lovelace. What do all of these women have in common other than being pure basses? I covered Alice Ball. Do not take her away from me. Sometimes I dip my toes into the stem pool. They all had men take credit for their work, subsequently banishing them to the margins of history. Men stealing work and credit from women is a common and frustrating trope in women's history that we have revisited time and time and time again. And we'll continue to revisit because, God damn it, it keeps happening. It's bullshit. It's so. fucking bullshit. No, 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 no. Margaret Keene joins the ranks of exceptional women who were victims of intellectual theft. But in her case, it wasn't a colleague who tried to erase her name or even someone who discovered her work long after her death. Oh, God, what was it? It was her own goddamn husband. Yeah, that's we've had those people before, too. You know what? I That was going to be so dramatic. You're like, we've been there. We've done that. Let me have my drama. No. <laughs> Margaret Keene was born Peggy Doris Hawkins, which, like, great name. Peggy Doris Hawkins. Yeah. I love it. I love the last name Hawkins, too, because it reminds me of Treasure Island. Not Treasure Planet also treasure planet so she was born on september 15th 1927 in nashville tennessee so we're back in tennessee but there's no race massacre this time thank you god when margaret was only two years old I mean, she, there still was well, just not I, in this story not in this specific story 
When Margaret was only two years old, she underwent surgery on her ear, during which her eardrum was permanently damaged. And to cope with the hearing loss, Margaret learned to pay close attention to people's eyes, watching them for cues to amplify what they were saying. So she got really good at reading faces because she couldn't rely on hearing, and she found that eyes were the most expressive part of the face to, you know, pick up what the person was laying down, if you know what I'm saying. So this focus on eyes would become a staple in her artwork. It would become the most identifying feature of her artwork later on. Margaret started drawing and painting as a child, and some of her early drawings were of angels with massive eyes and floppy wings. And at first I thought that was weird, but I also remember vividly in kindergarten drawing angels because I went to Catholic school. And I remember drawing little feet on them and having my teacher tell me angels don't have feet and me being like, what the fuck? (laughs) I don't understand the anatomy of an angel. It depends on which version of an angel you're looking at. Like, here's the thing. The teacher was kind enough to tell me there were no feet, but not kind enough to tell me an angel was actually made of like a thousand eyes or whatever. Anyway. Um, She enrolled in the Watkins College of Art, Design, and Film and completed her first oil painting when she was 10 years old. So she enrolled in this college and completed her first oil painting when she was 10 years old. Wow. The painting was of two little girls with giant eyes, one crying and one laughing. Naturally, she gave this to her grandmother as a gift who definitely did not call a priest for an exorcism. And definitely was not freaked the fuck out by that creepy painting. And here's the thing. I like Margaret's work. I love it. It's creepy though. And that's why I love it. So can you imagine being like the grandmother and your grandchild gives you this painting of these creepy girls laughing and crying. You're just being like, it's great. It's fine. And this woman was born like the 1800s. (laughs) Margaret attended... Trapagan School of Design in New York City for a year and made a living painting clothes and baby cribs through the 1950s while working on her own art. So Margaret's style is often described as kitsch and typically depicted waif-like girls, animals, or other figures with massive dark eyes looking vulnerable in dystopian environments. And Kelly, I I don't usually do this, but I am going to ask you to Google Margaret Keene Paintings, uh, K-E-A-N-E. Because you really need to see these. And I strongly encourage all of our listeners who are not otherwise deposed by driving or, you know, doing something important to look up these paintings because it's just going to make so much more sense. This whole story is going to make so much more sense. Okay, continue. So um, this was definitely my aesthetic in middle school and high school. With the big eyes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very... um, like Tim Burton-esque. It's kind of gothic and trippy. And like, it's like a dark Alice in Wonderland vibe. I love it, but it is definitely creepy. And that's part of the point. So in 1948, Margaret married Frank Lubrick and had her daughter Jane. And in 1953, while she was married to Frank, Margaret met a man who would change her life forever. Walter Keene. A little bit about Walter. And you know it's never good when the husband gets his own section, just like last week. Not in here, anyways. Not in this. Not in this world. Walter was born in 1915, and he was 
all about the hustle. Growing up, he made money by selling shoes and later became a real estate broker along with his wife, Barbara. And the couple started an educational toy line called Susie King's Puppeteens. I hate it. This is nightmare fuel. These were puppets that taught kids French while an accompanying book and gramophone record. Um, like like they played with the toys while reading this book and listening to this gramophone and it taught them French. Uh, it was sold in high-end stores like Saks Fifth Avenue. So these are mm. like high-end. These are high-end creepy toys. Valid. Yes. So th- these were like the French Teddy Ruxpins of their day. Like pure nightmare fuel for children, but parents were buying them up like crazy because they thought they'd make their children's geniuses. Um, And like all of this is fine. That You know, you're, you're educating kids, you're all about the hustle, fine. But Walter was a foul-mouthed, womanizing, abusive drinker. So it's not surprising that he and Barbara divorced in 1952. Shocking. Or 53. Ish. I I found it it differed as to whether or not he was married when he met Margaret or not. Hmm. But um, according to the timeline that I went with, the following year in 1953, while Margaret was making charcoal sketches at a fairground, Walter came upon her. And Walter fancied himself a painter. He actually, like, quit his real estate job and shut down the toy business to work exclusively on his paintings was he any good we will literally never know because we have never seen this man paint Hmm. um so he he was like he like fancied himself a really great painter and the two likely bonded over art margaret would describe him at the time as quote suave gregarious and charming so he was kind of this like roguish figure he's very charming but he had the gift of gab and he had ill intent behind it all he was like a bard but like a chaotic evil bard so they would marry in 1955 and it's hard to know if walter actually ever loved margaret but based on his actions after their marriage i would surmise he saw her only as an opportunity rather than a partner gross Walter encouraged Margaret to focus solely on her art and persuaded her to lock herself in the basement studio to paint. He then began marketing and selling Margaret's quote-unquote big eyes paintings as they would become known because obviously that was the most prominent feature, these like big-eyed waifs or like vulnerable-looking figures. Margaret was spending... 16 hours a day churning out painting after painting it was laborious but the demand for margaret's work only grew what she didn't know though was that walter wasn't marketing margaret's work he was marketing it and selling it as his own of course god damn it according to walter he was a great artist again we have no idea because like i i couldn't find any of his work i couldn't find anything that could reliably be credited to him. Um, And his wife, on the other hand, was the dabbling amateur. It was easier for Walter to perpetuate this lie because Margaret would sign her painting simply as Keen, their joint last name. And even later on, like, in a lot of the publicity surrounding these paintings and Walter, like, she's in a lot of the photos, but she's definitely portrayed as, like, the... 
the amateur. Oh, she also likes yeah. art, but I'm the artist. Like she also paints, but I'm the painter. Like he's the focus on on everything, and he's claiming her work as his own. Walter Ever, the hustler, started appearing on in local newspaper and television interviews, eventually gaining national attention. Art critics were not fans of the big eye paintings, with one describing Walter, which was really Margaret, as, quote, the painter who enjoys international celebration for grinding out formula pictures of wide-eyed children of such appalling sentimentality that his product has become synonymous among critics' definition of tasteless tack work. That was a mouthful. Here's the thing. I Tasteless uh, tact work. Hack work. Oh, hack work. Tasteless. Tasteless. Sorry, there's not a T at the end of that word. Hack work. So basically, it's like, it's the same kind of thing over and over in different ways. And I'm like, I'm not making a direct comparison, but it reminded me of Lisa Frank, where it's like, art critics would probably not give that art a second glance, but it was hugely successful commercially. And you can't say it wasn't good art. Fucking rainbow leopards and dolphins? That was the 90s. Fuck off. (laughs) However, everyone else loved her art. Even Andy Warhol said of the paintings, quote, I think what Keen has done is just terrific. It has to be good. If it were bad, so many people wouldn't like it. And I think that's an interesting point on, like, the difference between what is and can be commercially successful versus what is lauded by critics. Nothing is necessarily right or wrong. They're different. And it's like, is one more valid than the other? Like is critically acclaimed art better because the public doesn't get it? Or is it commercially acclaimed art is better because the public it's more accessible? There is no answer. Art is subjective. Anyway. Of her own work, Margaret would say, quote, some people couldn't stand to even look at them. I don't know why, just a violent reaction, but so many people really love them. Little children love them, even babies. So eventually I thought, I don't care. I'm just going to paint what I want to paint. And to that I say, you fucking go, Margaret. In 1961, Walter donated one of Margaret's paintings to the United Nations Children's Fund. It featured a series of multicultural children with the signature big sad eyes. It it was like a Tim Burton version of the It's a Small World ride (laughs) Walt Disney. Um, And it was such a sensation that Walter was invited to be on The Tonight Show. Host at the time, Jack Parr, was practically kissing Walter's feet, describing the painting as the greatest he'd ever seen. And Walter feigning modesty said, well, there's Rembrandt, Vermeer, Degas. He's like, well, I mean, there are all these other really, like, really famous male artists. Oh, and also, Margaret, your wife, who's actually painting these. Right. You son of a bitch. Walter would go on to open galleries in California and New York with commissions being ordered by Hollywood elites such as Zsa Zsa Gabor, Natalie Wood, rest in peace, and Liberace. Even President John F. Kennedy had portraits of his children, John John and Carolyn, hung in the White House. Like, this is how prevalent this art became. It, it, it went its time equivalent of viral. Everyone had a Margaret Keene, either an original or a print, some way. The paintings were recreated, printed on magnets, postcards, mugs, and more, and sold 
all over the world. With the growing pop, oh, sorry. In an article for Life Magazine, Walter was quoted as saying, there's just no place we're not. With the growing popularity of Margaret's paintings, how was it that she didn't know that Walter was passing them off as his own? Because she's locked in the basement. Well, she did know. Oh, she just didn't care. Well, this is a really, I, I think this is a really good opportunity to kind of explore the emotional effects of abuse and what people who are being abused will submit to and put up with when they're in that environment and it is never their fault. You Like, I, this is just a really, I think this is a really good example of, I think we can all be empathetic to this and just kind of better understand other people who are in abusive situations. So at the beginning of the deception, Margaret was totally unaware that this was happening, but when she did find out, she felt the whole scheme had gotten too big for her to try and exert her independence over she would say, quote, the whole thing just snowballed and it was too late to say it wasn't him who painted them. I'll always regret that I wasn't strong enough to stand up for my rights. Margaret later reported that Walter was abusive, which also made her feel that she couldn't stand up against him. She would later testify in court that Walter had threatened her life and her daughter's life if she spoke out. Testimony that her daughter would corroborate. I also want to include an excerpt from an interview that uh, she did for The Guardian that gives an idea of the situation she was living in. And and this is by no means like an all-encompassing, but I think it gives you um, like a pinhole pricks eye view into. Yeah. So anyway, um, Walter wrote in his memoir, there were always three or four people swimming nude in the pool. Everybody was screwing everybody. Sometimes I'd be going to bed and there would be three girls in the bed. The Beach Boys would visit no, Maurice Villiers and Howard Keel. But Margaret ra- rarely saw them because she was painting 16 hours a day. The interviewer asked, did the servants know what was going on? So, so at this point, they've made, a bu- they've made so much money that they move into this nice house with a pool and they have servants and they more so Walter are kind of living the high life. And so the interviewer asked, did the servants know what was going on? And Margaret says, no, the door was always locked. The curtains closed. The interviewer asked, you spent all those years with the curtains closed. She said when he wasn't home, he'd usually call every hour to make sure I hadn't gone out. I was in jail. And these are all hallmarks of a, an incredibly abusive and controlling relationship. He asked if she knew about the affairs and she shrugged and said, I didn't care what he did by then. And he said, that must have been lonely. She replied, yes, because he wouldn't allow me to have any friends. If I tried to slip away from him, he'd follow me. We had a chihuahua and because I love that little dog so much, he kicked it. And so finally I had to give the dog away. He was very jealous and domineering. And all along he said, quote, if you ever tell anyone, I'm going to have you knocked off. I knew he knew a lot of mafia people. He really scared me. He tried to hit me once, but I said, where I come from, men don't hit women. And if you ever do that again, I'll leave. Good for her. But I let him do everything else, which was even worse, probably. Yeah. And I think this is another thing to acknowledge is like women in particular, there's not a certain kind of woman 
that ends up in an abusive relationship. It can happen to anyone. It's not, it doesn't mean you're strong. It doesn't mean you're weak. It can happen to anyone. And like, I've been in an abusive relationship and drawn my boundaries, but let a lot of other stuff slide where I feel like I lost myself or lost my sense of freedom or independence. Like this is just, and, and like what she's describing is so typical of an abusive relationship. And it can happen to anyone. I just, I really want to drive that forward. And it is like very hard to leave. So much of it, like the isolation, the, like literally almost everything you've described about their relationship. I'm like, yep, that's all signs of an abusive relationship. Yeah. But then also I think what's interesting is. old school gaslighting. Yeah. But then this idea that it had just gotten too big. It's like the idea of leaving this situation feels so overwhelming that it's in the short term easier to stay and I don't mean easy like everything's okay it's just the easier choice to make because you feel like you can control the situation you can be like well I don't let him hit me but I let him sleep with all the you know like I let everything else go and it's really it's really difficult so I just I really want to acknowledge the the effects of long-term abuse and how it can really fuck with your mind. Margaret would say, quote, I was in this trap and I was getting deeper and deeper. I didn't have enough sense to stop it or courage. And I don't think it was sense or courage. I think it's just those are the natural effects of being in an abusive relationship. And I and I can relate to those feelings where you just feel like you've let enough stuff go, you've put up with enough, where leaving feels insurmountable. Yeah. So she would sit with Walter in interviews, dutifully nodding along as Walter described his artistic virtue struggles and philosophy. Remember, he hasn't painted a single goddamn thing. And not only is he lying about it, he's making her sit there with him as a part of this whole charade and bragging to cameras and journalists about his artistic integrity while she is there to just sit by and watch. And that is so disgusting. Finally, in 1965, Margaret won a court-ordered separation from Walter, citing abuse. This wasn't the end of their relationship, however. Before the separation, Walter and Margaret had made a secret deal that she would keep painting and he would keep selling the paintings as long as she received a share of the profits. Because up until this point, she got jack shit. Yeah, she got to move in the fancy house with the servants. Not that she got to enjoy any of it because she was in the basement painting 16 hours a day. And I I just imagine that like Margaret just saw this as her cost of freedom. She's like, I have to get out of here at any cost necessary. And she was obviously willing to, you know, continue to sacrifice herself to get out. So Margaret moved to Hawaii where she met and married columnist Dan McGuire Margaret credits her relationship with Dan as helping her rebuild her self-esteem and sense of self that had been steadily stripped away from her by Walter over years of abuse. And reconnecting with yourself after an abusive relationship is a long, hard road and a journey that never really ends. Yeah, The journey looks different for everyone, but for Margaret, by 1970, she knew that it was time to expose Walter. And this is where... (laughs) We really have some fun. All the all the crap that we've just been through, it's going to be worth it because we're going to nail Walter to a fucking wall. So she traveled to San Francisco where one of Walter's galleries were. Remember the galleries, you know, displaying 
her fucking work. And she told a reporter that Walter was a complete fucking fraud and that she was the true artist behind the big eye paintings. And to prove her case, she openly challenged Walter to a public paint off in Union Square. She's like, I will fucking show everyone in real time that he is not the artist. I am. And I am not afraid of that challenge. The story blew up and Margaret arrived in Union Square ready to square off with Walter who was a no-show because when confronted, swindlers like him proved to be fucking cowards. Suck a dick. Margaret was not done, though. She sued Walter for defamation and proposed a courtroom paint-off as the only way to definitively prove that Walter was not the true artist. A judge agreed to this because, like, it sounds absurd, but at the same time, it's like everyone can, like, claim that they're the true artist and like make up stories about like where the art came from and their influences but really if you're just watching these two people paint side by side you can objectively figure out who's actually doing these paintings right so the judge agreed and in front of the courtroom margaret skillfully recreated recreate or created excuse me one of her signature big eye paintings and what of walter He didn't even so much as pick up a paintbrush, claiming his shoulder hurt and that he couldn't possibly paint, but he's been cranking out hundreds and hundreds of paintings over the few years. Oh my God, now that he's under the microscope, he can't paint. Like, fuck you, Walter. Fuck you. The judge ruled in Margaret's favor, awarding her $4 million in damages. Not that she would see any of that money as Walter declared bankruptcy soon after. Because he sucks. Despite his public plummet from grace, Walter spent the rest of his life asserting that he was the true artist. Gross. Not that anyone believed him anymore. And you you hear this. I'm, I'm not saying Walter's a murderer, but you hear this from like murderers who, who still purport their innocence despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary or you know, like even serial killers. And it's it's all about control. And as long as they keep asserting this lie, they feel like they haven't fully lost control. Margaret would later say of Walter, quote, I think lying like that, I think he began to lose touch with reality. I think he actually convinced himself he could paint maybe. Which I wouldn't be surprised because Walter was obviously delusional. Walter died on December 27th, 2000 at 85 years old in the shortcut of his of his wiki page bio where it says known for it says plagiarism. And that, that is his is legacy. Fantastic. That's all it says. It doesn't even say like artist, real estate broker, plagi- it's just plagiarism and that's his legacy. And Like, I don't know, maybe I'm just really insensitive. I'm like, I'm kind of glad that's how he lived the rest of his life. And that's how he's going down in history. He he did get married a third time, but that ended in divorce due to abuse allegations. Like, he sucked. He was just like not a good person. And he fucking abused the crap out of Margaret for her art. Gross. After the trial, Margaret stepped into her true role as a public artist, establishing a gallery in San Francisco or Walter had had his, and enjoying a 25-year career of painting independently 
and not under duress, stuck in a basement for 16 hours a day. If she was in a basement for 16 hours a day, that was her damn choice. And he had a lot of influence over her artwork. He would like tell her, no, 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 you have to paint this and you have to paint this. Like it it was incredibly controlling. And now she's finally able to step into this skin, you know, that, that that's really hers and have the control over it. Margaret passed away on June 26th, 2022. So just under a year ago at 94 years old. Legacy. Margaret's impact on art and pop culture has stretched far and wide, and she was alive to enjoy most of this recognition. In 2014, the film Big Eyes, based on Margaret's story and directed by Tim Burton, which didn't surprise me because her art feels very, like, kind of gothic, Tim Burton, surreal-esque. 100%. Um, It was released. Margaret was played by Amy Adams, and Walter was played by Christoph Waltz, which I'm like, okay, I love Christoph Waltz. And I was like, oh, but I love him. I'm like, but he can also play a real son of a bitch. (laughs) So maybe that was good casting. Margaret was very protective of the film rights of her story and was involved with approving the screenplay. And she even made a cameo. So there's a part of the movie where there's like an older woman sitting on a bench and that's her. But yeah, she was like involved in the filmmaking process. And she turned down a lot of deals before agreeing to this. Margaret's paintings have appeared in films, TV shows, album art, and more. Entirely too much for me to list, but my favorite, and all the 90s babies are going to start screaming, Margaret's art inspired the 90s cartoon staple, the Powerpuff Girls. Are you serious? The motherfucking Powerpuff Girls. The titular characters all have massive eyes, and their teacher is even named Miss Keen. And the the like That's, the animator yeah. admitted he was like highly inspired. I did I was like, oh my God, are you fucking kidding me? But like the doll like imagery and yeah, her being Miss Keen, that just that blew my fucking mind. And like, that's a very small sample of how Margaret's work has influenced people. And really, I mean, I mean, beyond her being an incredible artist, like Art critics aside, you know, they, they've all got their own opinions. This is really an incredible story of a woman who's being used and abused. And after all of that gets up and fights back and even more remarkably wins. And that's just so inspiring to me. That is like, and, and she she overcame so much. Well, and she wouldn't have probably been recognized in her lifetime had she not fought back. Like that movie, the like Tim Burton's movie that really kind of reinvigorated interest in her story that only came out in 2014, which now I realize is almost 10 years ago, which makes me feel old, but still, you know what I mean? It's just, it's really incredible. It's really incredible. But yeah, that's the story of Margaret King and the big eye paintings. Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank you goodness. 
There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000-plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash herstory. So your uterus must have been glowing when you were writing this because I also covered an artist. God damn it, Kelly. And I actually had to go back because one of the men mentioned in my story is from... Episode 11, when I co- covered, um, oh my God, what was her name? Hold on, let me look it up again. Um, Camille Claudel. This, oh my God. One of the men God. from that story reappeared. Is this the guy story. whose grave I want to piss on? I think so. I mean, we have no, many of them. I hate him. Okay, can, can I just say, like, okay, that, that's a deep cut, episode 11. But I remember Camille Claudel's story and how upsetting it was. And I think, like, uh, like it's not that any of the stories that we covered before that weren't upsetting, but that was one of the one first ones that you told where I was really like, this is such an injustice yeah. against a human being. Like, yeah. it was oh, so no, like, I, The name hard. came up in my research, and I was like, where the fuck do I? Like, because it was like giving me a yeah. visceral reaction. Like, I read the name, and I was like, why do I suddenly feel like sick to my stomach? I see and photos I of her face and I just get really and, sad yeah. because she, she deserves so much better and yeah. she, she didn't get it. And it's, I'm glad we're acknowledging her now, but she seriously go back to listen up to listen to episode 11. That Camille Claudel's deep cut. It's, it's a name that we should all know. It really is. And her story Another is artist that got fucked over by people. It's really incredible. In good ways and very bad ways. Right. Yeah, I remember that was one of the first stories where I was like, this is why we're doing this. Right. Because a lot of these women did not get justice during their lives. Right. And my my story is similar. to No one outright steals my person's work. She's just overshadowed by men. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm covering Gwen John. Oh, my God, Gwen! That's my mom's name. Um, there she- are no bad Gwens. She was born in Haverford West, Wales. Haverford. Haverford West. Haverford West. One word. Haverford West. Uh, She was the second of four children to Edwin and Augusta. Um, Edwin was a solicitor who had kind of a poor temperament is how I would say it. I would also have a poor temperament if I was knocking on people's doors trying to sell them vacuums. And... So, like, that kind of, like, the family was very subdued, and Augusta was often, like, absent, owing, at least from the children. She was sick a a little bit of the time, but she was also um, just kind of gone, and her sisters, who were really, like, stern and strict and stuff, would often come and, like, run the household and the children in her stead. Depression will do that to you. Right. So, they had kind of a rough upbringing. Um Augusta, the mom, was an amateur watercolorist in her own right, and both parents would often encourage their children's interest in art and literature. 
as one should. Um, her mother would actually die fairly young. Gwen was only eight when her mom passed. And wait, I'm sorry. You said Gwen was only eight when her mom passed. Gwen's the mom, right? No, 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 no. Augusta's the mom. Oh shit. Okay, I'm. Gwen is who I'm covering. Gwen John. Okay, sorry, Gwen John. Gwen John, I got this. Okay, so Gwen was only eight. When Augusta passed. And she was the second of four. Yes. Yeah, that's... So here's the fun thing. Um, the mom's name was Augusta. The brother's name, who is featured quite prominently in the story, is Augustus. So that's a thing. Uh, yeah. So what I found interesting is I couldn't find anything about like Gwen and her reflections on her mother. But Augustus said, quote, my mother would no doubt have been helpful, but she died when I was a small child after I fear a very tearful existence. I was like, wow. OK. Like, so mom definitely had depression. Yeah. No, like th- there's two parts of that quote. She died after a very tearful existence. It's the acknowledgement that she was a very unhappy woman. She likely suffered from depression, perhaps postpartum depression. It also sounds like her husband was potentially abusive. And then the first part is like... She would would have been been helpful helpful if she hadn't gone and died. Right. So selfish. Yeah. So selfish. So following their mom's death, uh, the family would move to Pembrokeshire in Wales. Um, where Gwen and her sister Winifred would um, be educated by a governess instead of actually getting sent to school. I mean, that was so common. You have a governess to, like, basically raise your children for right. you, especially if like your the, wife died. It sounds like the brother must have gone to school. It was just... Well, like, yeah. Yeah, they go to boarding schools. So the Gwen and Winifred would often go to the coast of Tenby to sketch, uh, and... Gwen said that she would make, quote, rapid drawings of beached gulls and shells and fish on stray pieces of paper and sometimes in the front piece of a book she was reading. So she would just like constantly be sketching whatever was catching her attention. Margaret did that, too. She would sketch in her textbooks. Yep. Yeah. So that's very classic. I, know, I love that. Cute. Oh, my God. Um, they would have been such good friends. They would have. Although she painted and drew from an early age, uh, Gwen's first sur- surviving work doesn't date until she was 19. She's drawing all her all her life, but none of it survived for one reason or another. Um, she would go on to study at the Slade School of Art, where the program was modeled after uh, the French Atelier model, which or method rather, which is basically like there's a master artist, and then that one master has a bunch of students. So it's not like school as as you think of it as today. It's really like almost more of an apprenticeship, but there's multiple students under one master right right i there was an artist i used to work with for modeling who called his apartment the atelier and i was like how delightfully pretentious i love it right so my house is also a chateau (laughs) (laughs) so the interesting thing and the cool thing about the slade school of art was it was the only school in the united kingdom at this time so this is 1895 ish um that would allow female students it was the only art school in the in the united kingdom um Generally, there wasn't a lot of mixing of men and women, whether it was on the grounds, in the classrooms, in the corridors. Everything was very separate, which is still like, really? Um, And her younger brother, Augustus, actually was studying there as well. He actually started prior to her, even though he was younger, but I'm assuming it's a male-female thing. Sexism. Right. Um, 
she would study drawing under Henry, Henry Tonks. And during this period to save money, she and her brother would actually live together and they would actually subsist on a diet of nuts and fruit because they had almost no money. Okay, this is also me sometimes where I'm like, <laughs> like yeah, that sounds accurate. Maybe what'd toast. You, what'd you have for lunch? Trail mix? What'd you have for breakfast? Coffee? What'd you have for dinner? Trail mix? <laughs> Emily, stop just eating trail mix, dummy. <laughs> right. Um, she would go on to develop a close relationship with um, a woman named Ida Nettleship. Um, I love that name. Who her brother would go on to marry, which I'm like, aw. I hope they were best friends and they bitched about him behind his back. Oh, 100%. Or to his face. Yeah. The way Maybe we bitched both. to Justin. Yeah. So at this time, she also was in a relationship uh, with a man who happened to be her brother's friends named Ambrose Ma- McAvoy, who that whole thing turns into a story of its own, which kind of interweaves with this story. Like her relationship with Ambrose throughout her life. So we'll put a pin in that for right yeah, now. Just remember that name. Um, How can you forget Ambrose, Ambrose. McAvoy? I know, right? Um, it started out happy and it didn't end the best. Um, she would go on to actually do pretty well at Slade and she would actually win the Melville Nettleship Prize for figure composition in her um, final year. She did a lot of figure drawing. Oh my God! I love her. Um, I could have modeled for her. And she also did, she did like a mix of like figure drawing, landscapes, and like rooms. It was, it's very interesting. If you like look, and she did cats too. <gasps> she talks about how like drawing animals and drawing people is basically the same. And I'm like, that's interesting. Oh my, okay. Is Gwen my mom from another life? Because this is all so appropriate. Also, funny. like, was her friend, you said it was like the whatever Nettleship Award? Yeah. Was her friend? I don't know. I didn't look okay. into it. Okay. Um, Doesn't matter. So Slade students were encouraged to copy works of old masters in London museums. That was actually a very common thing in art schools back then it was basically like just make reproductions of the masters well because you couldn't and google that stuff, stuff and use references right. you know it was like hey let's copy from the best of the best and you can kind of find your way through that right. map yep so a lot of gwen's early paintings are um much more quote-unquote traditional with like very subdued colors and transparent glazes and they will you, you can kind of like see a change in her older works so even as a student, um, her brother's uh, draftmanship and personal glamour made him a little bit more of a celebrity in contrast to Gwen, who was much quieter and her paintings were very subdued. Um, the interesting thing, or at least thing I find interesting is Augustus really, really admired his sister's work because I, I think she, I think he felt like, oh, you, you know, you can be quiet and graceful, whereas I have to put on this show for people to pay. Are you looking at the picture of the cat? I am. <laughs> I Google. I Googled her it's and like her the work. Fourth picture that shows up. There's it's called John's pic- cat or there's something. There's a picture of a cat. It's so cute, and like the cat has this wild, like super cute face but also like it might kill you at a minute right. i'm like oh my I just, god it's I just arthur say, emily was making a face for like a solid two minutes before i acknowledged that i knew I was, she was looking at the i cat. was trying not to interrupt your flow but this fucking cat um anyways so augustus like like i said admired his sister but he was really worried about her because she often neglected her health so he urged her to take quote a more athletic attitude to life which i'm like i don't know what that means 
That um, is actually contrary to the popular belief where it's like, oh, if women aren't feeling well, they should literally be sedentary. Right. Um, she refused his advice. And honestly, throughout her life, there's a lot of disregard for her physical well-being. She was sick a lot, didn't take very good care of herself, didn't make sure she was eating enough, etc. Um in 1898, she would go on to visit Paris uh, for the first time. She would go back to Paris quite often, which makes sense. That was a really big art. Stop staring at the cat. <laughs> <I'm>... <laughs> Pay attention to my story. Okay, hold on. Let me go. First of all, I want to print off this picture of the cat and so hang it cute. in my house. It's so it's a, cute. It's like a calico, isn't it? Yeah, but it reminds me of yeah. Arthur because its face is like so cute, but also like, I might come and fuck your life up right. at any moment. Okay, can I continue okay. now? Yes. So she went to Paris. I wasn't saying anything. I was just like, my eyes were tearing yes. up, okay? Um, she would study under James McNeil Whistler at Academia Common. She's in France. I don't know how to do a French accent. There are also pa- picture- paintings of her with cats in her lap, so I completely left right. that Google image page. <laughs> um, so she would, re- she would return to London after um, a year and would exhibit her for her work for the first time in, in 1900 at the New English Art Club, as Ooh. fancy as that sounds. Um, during this time, her old beau, um, and I think they were still seeing each other at this time, just from uh, what I read, uh, Arthur McAvoy, or Arthur Ambrose. Apparently his first name is actually Arthur. Um, Arthur! So I'm just, I'm just going to call him Ambrose. Ambrose call McAvoy. It, don't ruin Arthur for me. Yeah. Arthur is truly good. So during this time, he became engaged to Mary Edwards. And, quote, an awkward period ensued with Gwen still living at the McAvoy home in Bayswater. So obviously, like, they must have still been seeing each other when he got engaged to this other person. Because he was, she was living at their home. Have you, um, ever, have you ever heard of, like... People who they, they split from relationship right. or they get divorced, but they're living together. And so there's that Super weird awkward. period where they're still living together. Yeah. Here, That's this, except he gets right. engaged to someone else. Here's where it gets a little better or a little worse. She continued living there while Ambrose and his new fiance or wife moved somewhere else. Oh my God. <laughs> like, That's awkward. Um, so uh, after a few years, she would travel back to France, France, France. This time with Dorelia Dorelia McNeil. We need to bring that name back. Second awkward fact, she would later become, or no, she would later be, yeah. She would later become her brother's second wife. So she's really good friends with all the people her brother marries. Okay, wait. I'm I I I can't tell if she's just becoming good friends with like the women that her brother brings into her sphere, or if his brother um, is aggressively fucking through her one. entire friend because, list. Because <laughs> when they traveled to France, that friend was not even like on the brother's radar. They would get married much later. He's got like the top ten yep. friend list we'll on there, and he's going. like check check <laughs> check oh Dorelia your time has come I do mm, like that mm, name mm. though oh um, I love that name so what I think is kind of cool about I feel like this would be us if we were artistic and went to France we're not artistic so it won't happen but if we were this would be us so Gwen and Dorelia landed in Bordeaux France and then just kind of like walked with their art equipment uh they intended to reach Rome but they <laughs> they didn't really the they didn't bring a ton of money with them, so they would sleep in fields and earn money to eat and stuff along the way by just like setting up their art equipment, making sketches, selling them, 
and then continuing. They only made it as far as Toulouse. I'd have to look up a, a map of France to see how far Bordeaux and Toulouse are. That's and then one of the how, cats in the Aristocats. It all comes back to cats. <laughs> and then how far like Rome is. So I don't know how far on their journey made it, but they did not make it all the way to Rome. Here's the thing. If I was confident I wouldn't get murdered doing that, I would try it. Right. So she would return. So she would return to England and then return to Paris again with Dorelia um, a few years later. And she would become an artist model, mostly for female artists. But during that same year, she would begin modeling for sculptor August Rodin. Rodin? Yeah. Or Rodin? Rodin. That's, no, no, no. We figured this out. Oh, yeah, it's Ro- That's it, how it's you pronounce spelled it. It's Rodin, but it's Rodan. Because and yes, fucking French. And now we're back to I actually, Camille. <laughs> I actually like listened to that episode. I was like, God damn, we call him Rodin the entire yeah, it's time. Rodin. I'm like, I think it's Rodan. August Rodin. He's, for, he's for, an anyone who's, for anyone who's not aware, he's a famous artist who did The Thinker and was a dick. The thinker, it was terrible. which was a small part of like the gates to hell, which yeah. were really the gates to his bedroom. Right. Yeah. He was an asshole. There's a good chance he stole some artwork from other people. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Listen to episode 11. Um, <laughs> but he, she would briefly become his lover because that's kind of what he did. Um, after being introduced by a woman named Hilda Flodin. Uh, Rodan would use Gwen as a model for a muse in his unfinished monument to Whistler, um, another person. And she became like obsessed with Rodan. Again, it's very common for this man. It makes me kind of mad. Well, um, like, I, I'm sure he was very charming. He was a great oh, yeah. artist, and he's giving these female artists attention and validation that they're not getting from anywhere else. Right. Um, so. She would be like on and off obsessed with this guy for the next 10 years as documented in thousands of letters to him. So like this is kind of her wart because we talk about she became like obsessed, like fiercely obsessed with people throughout her life, Mm -hmm. both male and female, sometimes very disturbing to the person because they didn't want the attention. Yeah. Um, Isn't there an attachment style? Oh, yeah. It's like an insecure attachment style. Yep. Yeah. Um, and uh, Rodan, despite he did have genuine feelings for her in the beginning, but because she was so obsessed, she event he eventually use, used uh, resorted to using like concierges and secretaries to like provide that buffer so he didn't have to deal with her anymore. Which, okay, like to be fair. Yes, he was an asshole and she was being a, a bit much. But, yeah, if, if you don't feel comfortable around someone, like I get that. Like I've right. ghosted people because I'm like, mm, we're not doing this and you're creeping me out. Right. Um. So during this time in Paris, even though she was obsessed with Rodin, she would still meet a lot of the leading artists at the time, including Matisse, Picasso, uh, Rainier, um, basically a whole bunch of them. Rainier, Rainier, Rainier. Um, and um, but at kind of after this, she kind of made a bunch of developments in her art, and she put um a lot of effort into her art and worked a lot in solitude and kind of like withdrew from all this, not necessarily public, but like making other friends in the art world. Um, she found living quarters in Modan, a suburb of Paris, where she would actually remain for the rest of her life. So this time she went to Paris and she did not come home. Um, as her affair with Rodin drew close to the end, Gwen sought the comfort of Catholicism. Shocking. I'm sorry. You used comfort and Catholicism <laughs> in the same sentence and that's it broke she, my that's brain. That's how she worded it. 
1913, she was received into the church. I don't even know what that means. Baptized, Probably. confirmed, um, donated enough money. Her notebooks during this period include a lot of meditations and prayers, and she wrote of her desire to be, quote, God's little artist and become a saint. Um, yeah. I also kind of had the dreams of becoming a saint when I was really young. I didn't. But I was, I was going like, to Catholic school. All of school. the saints get murdered horribly. But it was always, for, like, I kind of... At that yeah, time, it was like for their devotion. But at that time, I could almost understand why people like find yeah, honor and I value of dying in war because it seems like such a good deal. Right. So she she also wrote during this time, apart from wanting to be like a saint in God's little art, she wrote, quote, as to whether I have anything worth expressing, that is apart from the question. I may never have anything to express except this desire for a more interior life. She's like, I just want to be alone. <laughs> Okay, the, that's how valid. I read it. <laughs> valid. But also, you know, she's like, I want to do the things that I feel are important that, right. you know, make me feel like I'm doing the right thing. And actually, right. I, I'm not. It seems like she's looking for outward validation and a devotion to faith is kind of a way for her to have that outward, but also inward validation. Right. Like it's not coming from a person. It's coming from God. Right. Which might actually be a bit healthier than being yeah. obsessed with some we'll asshole. Um, so during the same time period, she decided she was done exhibiting at the New English Art Club and would um, instead just kind of gain an, a, a patron instead. Like instead of exhibiting at an art institute, she gained a patron named John Quinn, who is an American art collector. And from 1910 until 1924, so 14 years, he purchased the majority of the works that she sold. He was like solo funding this woman. Well, that was that was kind of the way to do it at the time. Like you get a few really wealthy patrons right. who are kind of obsessed with she, you, she only and you're golden. And yeah. his support allowed Gwen to be able to work as a model and be able to like have her fully devote herself to her work she didn't have to worry about anything else she would still participate in exhibitions like kind of frequently but not as much as she would and but her perfectionism kind of made her not exhibit as much because she was just like I'm not I'm either I'm not good enough or my like this she wouldn't finish her pieces in time like whatever it was she called it her perfectionism she just had she struggled a lot to do the exhibitioning versus like a patron where she would just make something and he would be like yes I love it give me it okay this is incredibly relatable and a lot of the artists I know struggle with this and there's one in particular T I'm talking to you get your shit out there so she, she said, quote, I paint a good deal, but I don't often get a picture done. That requires for me a very long time of a quiet mind and never to think of exhibitions. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that. Like she needs to focus on it and think about it and without the pressure of performance. Right. The interesting thing was she like had this perfectionism, but her attitude toward her work, like when she did finish it, was very confident. She once went and viewed a César exhibit of watercolors. If Like, he's a very famous artist. And she actually was, like, looking at his work and went, yeah, these are good, but I prefer my own. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus. Oh, my God. Right. Um, well, I wonder if, like, her perfectionism didn't necessarily come from a lack of confidence. That might have been part of it, but also, like, 
I know I can do better than the yeah. greats and I need to. Yeah. But that's could be. a tall order. So um, kind of as she was settling in in Paris, or not, well, I guess it's a suburb of Paris, France, she would um, start painting for the Dominican Sisters of Charity and would begin a series of painted portraits called Mer Mer Pusipin. Mer Mer on the wall. Who's the Pusipin of them all? Um, which was like the founder of their order. And so like it was a kind of a series for her. Um, and these paintings were based on prayer cards, established a format for her. It was the female figure in three quarter length seated poses. You will see a lot of that if you flip through her work. Um, and that that's like her later style um, versus the earlier style. She also painted a lot of variants of the subject, such as, women holding cats and like stuff like that so many women holding cats but it's it's a lot in that three-quarter length seated pose even when they're having the cats it's all it's a lot of it's very similar no no and i i totally see that that theme um and then there's my cat and a lot of her models are actually like unknown versus like a lot of the other famous artists like they you can tell who their artists are they they repeated the same ones very often um so Gwen lived in, when she lived in her later years, she lived alone in solitude, except for her cats. I, there are so many more pictures 100%. of the cats I yeah. did not get to, and um, I'm freaking out right now. In an un, unled, undated letter, she wrote, quote, I should like to go and live somewhere where I met nobody I know till I am so strong that people and things could not affect me beyond reason. So it sounds like she maybe had a lot of doubt or something like that. She also actually wished to avoid her family a lot, like... She didn't really have any desire to see them. She wrote, quote, I think the family has had its day. We don't go to heaven in families now, but one by one. Um, yeah. I kind of get that. Some people, a lot of people think that it's, you know, her, her brother was really famous back in England and, you know, she didn't have the best life growing up and her being in France kind of gave her that ability to grow and blossom on her own instead of being in her brother's shadow, which I kind of agree. Well, and I, I totally get it because as someone who's had to, who, who feels very close, like I feel very close to my parents, but there are large sects in my family that I'm like, right. I don't like you and I don't love you and I don't have to. Like right. just because we're somehow related doesn't mean you're a part of my life and you're a part of my story and my destiny. So like I get that sense of separation because really you don't have to love your family. You don't even have to like them. Right. So um, according to an art historian, they that she was actually viewed as like the more ruthless and dominating of the siblings between the two of them. And it was rare that she didn't get what she wanted. And I could also see it being very hard to live under his shadow, especially if you are the more dominant personality. Um, she would go on to exhibit in Paris um, eventually in 1919. She would um, exhibit at a salon and would exhibit regularly there. Um, until she started becoming even more reclusive and would paint less. She actually only had one solo exhibition in her entire lifetime, and that was in London in 1926. Um, That was that same year she decided to fully move to Paris and not come home. (laughs) So I just think that's very interesting. Um, In that, or later that year, in December of 1926, uh, one of her old friends would die, and she would... um, meet and seek religious guidance from a neighbor, um, Jacques Maritien, and she would meet his sister-in-law, Vera, 
who she would form her last romantic relationship with, which would last uh, on and off for about four years. There's a little bit more story to that. Vera wasn't necessarily desiring the relationship and Gwen was very, not like forceful, but like persistent. Um, So Gwen's last work is a drawing made on March 20th, 1933. um, And there's no evidence that suggests she drew after that. She didn't die. She just, I mean, she eventually died, but she didn't die like then. She just, there's no, if, if she made any paintings or drawings or anything after that date, that's no the last, one knows where they are. That's the last recorded painting. Right. Um, she, um, it was six years later that she wrote her will and then traveled um, to Dieppe where she would collapse and was hospitalized. She would die eight days later and is buried in John Vall Cemetery. Um, and it is thought that she just wasn't eating and wasn't taking care of herself, basically, and just died due to ill health and lack of food. It was also very easy to die back then. Like you, yeah. you Oh, you, exactly. There was a very low margin of error for taking care of yourself. Right. But I don't know. I, I feel bad because it sounds like she was not a very happy person. Right. She was, she was a great artist. You know, she was, but it sounds like she was always looking for something that she couldn't quite find. And she was looking for it in other people, in faith, in her art, in, you know, validation for her art. And it it just feels like she never quite found it. So it, I don't know, her story almost feels like it ended prematurely because there's no conclusion. It's just. Well, she just kind of lived and then she died. She lived, she painted, she struggled and she died, which on it is actually probably a a better representation for a lot of artists at that time. Yeah. Um, so just on her art, she, she wrote a lot about her art and she, one time she said, quote, I think a picture ought to be done in one sitting or at most two for that one must paint a lot of canvases probably and waste them. Um, her surviving work is a lot less than a lot of other known artists. There's only about 158 known oil paintings. There's a lot more drawings than that. Yeah. But there's only 158 known oil paintings, which rarely exceed 24 inches in height or width. So, like, she stuck to small canvases. She, the majority of her paintings are portraits, though she did paint still lives and interiors. And she wrote, quote, a cat or a man, it's the same thing. And it's an, it's an affair of volumes. The object is of no importance. Which I think is interesting. So many cats. Right. And like I said, you can kind of tell, like, there's a shift in her earlier works where, where it's a much more traditional, thin glazes, muted colors. She still uses a lot of muted, muted colors um, in her... Um, as she grew older for later, works. but she uses a lot of like thicker paint and there's a lot more like mosaic style, um, touches and stuff like that. Her subjects are generally anonymous females. Like I said, seated three quarter length with their hands on their laps or cats, um, hands on their laps with cats. Right. <laughs> um, one of her models that we do know who she was, was a woman named Jeanne Foster. And, um, she wrote of Gwen quote, she takes down my hair and does it like her own. She has me sit as she does, and I feel the absorption of her personality as I sit. So basically, a lot of these women, she's like, this is me. She She's almost doing a self-portraiture through other women. Yes. 
You know, it, it's funny because some of these posts, there, there's one of a woman, like, she's clothed, but she's reclining. And right. I'm like, I've literally done that exactly. pose. Like, that's very, like, figure drawing-esque. Right. So, as I mentioned, there's not many, like, paintings left. However, her drawings number in the thousands. She did a lot of sketches and uh, brief watercolors of women and children in churches a lot, like, in her in her later years. Um, and unlike her oil paintings of, the, of solitary women, her sketches and watercolors often depict um, their subjects from behind and in groups. Um, and like I said, in addition to the paintings of her cats, she also made many, many sketches from her cats. It, it's so funny because the, the calico that I was staring at before, right. there are many, many, many paintings yeah, I think that was her cat. of the same cat. Yep. And I'm like, this cat was so loved. Right. Her <laughs> notebooks and letters contain numerous personal formulas for observing nature, painting portraits, designating colors by a system of numbers. And like, so she was very like formulaic in how she painted. Their meaning is, is lost. Like, a lot of what she wrote it doesn't make sense to people outside of her, but they they reveal they reveal that she really had this like need for order and stuff like that, which makes sense because it sounds like her childhood was incredibly chaotic. Her her father was volatile, her mother was unreliable, right? You know, she really had to make it on her own and kind of choose right. her own path, and she's kind of bouncing from person to person that she's clinging to, who are also volatile, right? So, though while she was alive and through much of her life, uh, Gwen was overshadowed by her popular brother, who tended to do, do a lot more vivid and assertive work versus her much more subtler and, like, quieter work, um, a lot of opinion now tends to view Gwen as the more talented of the two, including Augustus himself, actually, because he was quoted as saying, quote, in 50 years' time, I will be known as the brother of Gwen John." So he's like, no, there's one day that people won't remember who I am. I'm just going to be her brother. I actually think that's, that's really supportive. Like he doesn't sound mad. He's just like, yep, yeah, that's a thing. No, no. I, I think he, so w when you were talking about this and saying it up, I thought he was going to be an asshole. Oh no. When I first started like doing the research, I was like, God damn it. Is he going to steal her work? But it, it really sounds like he, he was like doing he was his doing, own exactly. thing and he, he really recognized her, her skill and her ability. Right. Um, so I didn't mention a ton of her partners. I mentioned some on and off, but I just want to point out that throughout her life, Gwen was attracted to multiple people of both sexes. As I said, it really started with Ambrose McAvoy, who she was on and off obsessed with until he got married to someone else. And then it was August Rod Rodan, um, who she viewed as her great love among I mean, so many women viewed him as that. And it just makes, still makes me sick to my stomach. Yeah. But she also had a number of same-sex relationships. While at Slade, she developed a passion for an unnamed woman that it, like, is detailed in her journal. But it's never, like, we don't know who it was. Um, her brother also describes um, that while she was in Paris, that she developed a passion for a married woman. Like, and, like, kind of chased her around Paris. So, like, there, there is very much, like, she is... Maybe not openly bisexual, but it's very well documented that she yeah. was bisexual. Or or pansexual. Something. Yep. Um, and so remember how I mentioned Rodan? Um, she was uh, Gwen was introduced by, by a woman named Hilda Floden. Um, so Floden and Rodan were also in a, like a relationship. And there are actual a lot of drawings that Gwen made of the two of them like erotically together. So I'm like, oh, so she was down with whatever. Was this a three? Apparently. Um, 
so and she was not the only one that like pursued people that were on uh uninterested she also had people that pursued her when she was uninterested particularly there was a german painter named ida that fell really like hardcore in love with gwen that she did not reciprocate and had to deal with but then yeah gwen's last passion vera she developed kind of almost like borderline obsession with and vera was like "Mm, i don't know i don't know about this (laughs) but you know she did she she did her um but yeah so like is she you know gwen Gwen's pictures are now currently held in a lot of public collections. Um, while she was kind of like a solo, like she did a lot for only one guy. A lot of those have been like released and are now like in the Tate, the Tate Britain museum and the Cardiff museum and stuff like that. She also, um, there's been multiple books written about her. There's plays. There was a play written about Gwen Ida, who was, who was her, the, her brother's first wife, and then Dorelia, who was her brother's second wife. And I'm like, I want to see that play. Um, but yeah, there's just been a lot. And then her, just her art kind of really has been influential. And like, like I said, it's, it's now like, yeah, being viewed that her, her art is, is more influential than like her brother's. And just, it's been very interesting, like doing the research and definitely like look up her art too. Look at all the cats. So many cats. You know, you know, what's interesting is, you know, you were talking about how that one model said that it she she felt like Gwen was recreating herself in the yeah. model. And a lot of the a lot of the paintings and drawings of women, they have the same look on their face. Right. Like like you can tell it's her work or it's some kind of representation of her because it's the same face. And I'm like, oh, crap, that's my resting depression face. <laughs> <laughs> or people are like, are you depressed? And I'm like, no, this is just how my face looks. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't be happier for you. Looks. But yeah, no, just that that sense of longing and melancholy. Yeah, that like just that like something's missing. Almost. Yeah, it's like they're looking off at something that they really want and can't have. I don't know. It's it's really cool. And then the cats, right? That fucking calico. So Emily. What are you thankful for? I'm so thankful for my cat. <laughs> oh, he's just, he's so cute. He snuggles with me. He's a good boy. He's an asshole, but I love him so deeply. And now I want someone to paint a beautiful picture of my cat. Because he's so handsome. No, you just take a picture of him and then you just put it in like the painting mode. Oh my God, I should do that. Is there, is there an app for that? I'm How can sure I do is. that? <laughs> we'll figure it out after. Artists! Get on that. I've got some, I've got some paint. I've got, I almost said paintings. Pictures of Arthur on the Instagram. Get to it. (laughs) No, I mean, I'm just, uh, okay. So what I'm really thankful for is I had the opportunity to take um, Q to this like concert recital thing that she had. It was like her whole grade and they sang songs based on this children's book they read called Dream Drum Girl, okay. I think it was. And it was about this, it, it was like based in this like Latin American village called the Music Village okay. or something, or the Village of Music, where everyone plays music and loves music, but only men are allowed to play drums, which I actually- I'm sorry, bitches. Yeah, I actually learned recently that it that has that like used to be a historical, thing. Yep. like it's still kind of a thing where like women playing drums in certain, certain like, Latin American well, and, communities is not common. And even in America, it used to be because like in marching bands in particular, they thought, yeah, they're like, oh, women aren't strong enough 
to march and carry the drums on their shoulders and their back. Which is so bizarre because I'm like, you know, you know that people with uteruses are like able to carry a whole ass human being inside yeah. them, right? I'm pretty sure drums right? weigh more than a baby, but yeah. Hey, but it's for a limited period of time, right? That anyway, can you have continue to carry- with your thank you? We're anyway, running- <laughs> anyway, the whole the whole the whole message was like people shouldn't be excluded because from doing something. I mean, based on their gender, the way they look, like it was all this acceptance. I'm like, oh, this is the anti-racism stuff that everyone's so up in arms about. You yeah. know, like, like this yeah. is what it looks like for third graders. But it was really sweet. I was glad I was able to take her. She was just beaming she was so excited about her hair being curled and they Cute. sang the song from the greatest showman where this is me and i love that song and i had signed up for this being like these third graders are gonna suck it's gonna be adorable but they're gonna suck and that song came on and i started tearing up i'm like these kids are so innocent they don't know hate and racism and this is just so beautiful and, you're like, and they could, still suck if only we could package this beautiful moment and i it was it was just very sweet and i was very happy that the you know the kids were learning that message and like seeing seeing q up there just like beaming and really she was so happy after she got out she even had like a solo oh, speaking part and i was just like oh, and i was like i didn't know you had a solo and she's like yeah like she's all excited but shy about it and it was it was really cute no it was it was one of those things where i'm like oh i get why parents are so proud all the time like this is really beautiful (laughs) these third graders sucking at singing is really beautiful yeah that's what i'm thankful for now i'm glad i got the opportunity i'm trying to remember what i said i was thankful for last week co-workers okay i shouldn't repeat that then I'm still super thankful for my coworkers. I had a rough week. Uh, <laughs> not because of my coworkers. Um, In spite of your coworkers. I don't know. I guess I'm thankful for my friends. I haven't, there are a few friends I haven't gotten to see a lot recently. And two of them have been like, hey, let's hang out. Let's do stuff. So like I saw one of them that last week and I'm getting to see one this weekend unexpectedly, but in a good What's way. What's up, Hojo? <laughs> 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 oh, he's God. definitely not in the house right now oh, he definitely, definitely did not hear that uh, um oh joe <laughs> i'm surprised the dogs aren't like freaking they probably are they know they're they know yeah uh but yeah so i'm just i'm <laughs> i'm thankful for even when like i don't have the energy or ability because i i've been kind of a lump on the log lately and so i've been really grateful for yeah my friends like I don't know if they know, like, cause I'm not great at communicating, but like people reaching out and just being like, Hey, I haven't seen you. We're going to hang out. Even though I'm like, but depression, depression is real. Yeah, it is. It's a real bitch. Well, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I really kind of thought you hated me up until now. And now I realize me bugging you to hang out all the time is actually welcome. Yeah, so it is. Great. Also, I found gray hair in my curls this morning. <gasps> it's been a day. Oh my lord! I've I've thought I found that before. Oh, and no. like, here's the thing: there, it's like six strands, but the way they like curl with the rest of my hair, it's like super fucking obvious. And I'm like, I good thing I have a hair appointment next week. 
He's like, I guess I'm dying my hair. Here's the thing. Like I've known people who have like gone gray hairs. I'm like, what's the big deal? You still look great. But then I thought I found one and my heart sank yeah, into di- my it's vagina. Different. It's different when it's yourself. And I was like, oh no. I was, I was jokingly really mean <laughs> to one of my coworkers. Cause I like, I mentioned that I found gray hairs and then she was like, look at my hair. And I'm like, yeah, but you're so much older than me. She's not, she's not that, <laughs> she's not that much older than I'm me. I'm so thankful for my coworkers for allowing me to emotionally right, abuse exactly. them. <laughs> <laughs> she knows what kind of week I had. God damn it, Kelly. I love you so much. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of about her story, especially if you're old with gray hairs. Like you me. fucking grandmas and grandpas and grand peoples. Grand peeps. Like us on Facebook at Whiny About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod. And then also you can buy us a glass of wine at buymeacoffee.com forward slash WAH Pod. Our Twitter is WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com where you can find our coffee link. You can find our merch. You can find our Patreon. You can find pictures of Emily's cat and our other animals and ourselves. Did you put pictures of Arthur on oh, did, there? I don't know. I will. Look on our Instagram. I, I post everything yeah. on there. Like if I have a healthy I, bowel I know, movement, it's, it's, I'm like Instagram. It's super funny because yeah, like our Instagram is like all Emily. There's like nothing about my life on there. Post pictures of your dogs. They're so cute. Mm. All right. We love you. Post pictures of your gray hairs. They're so no. cute. <laughs> Rate us five stars wherever you listen. Post pictures of your gray pubes. They're so cute. Love yourself, Kelly. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> no, I, I demand was, it. I was thinking now. I was like, what? I totally. Yeah, no, I stunned Kelly into silence with my inappropriateness. That never happens. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. Mercifully of whining about her history. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. Have an empowered day and count your gray pubes, y'all. <laughs> Bye. Bye.